Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited on to join us today, David Fenton of Fenton Communications. David has been on the path of social change and justice for a long, long time. Having started as a photojournalist back when he was a teenager, picking up, though, on the inequities, the injustices in our society back at that time. And in fact, he has morphed that into a leading media company that has been working at the edge of social change ever since, a more formalized way of making a social impact. And as those of you who watch the show or listen to it with any regularity, you know we have a real affection for social impact and um, social entrepreneurship, i.e. bringing together the domains of values, of ethics, with business and being able to forge a career and a livelihood out of what's deeply meaningful to us. And David is really an exemplar of exactly that marriage, if you will. So, David, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. It's a real pleasure. I've looked up to you for a long, long time. So it's especially a pleasure to sit here and uh, have a chance to schmooze with you a little bit about what you've done and, uh, and what you're doing. So, nice to see you virtually. <laughs> yes, so to speak, exactly. So, you know, you began the, the Fenton Communications back in 1982, and you have this rather extraordinary history of, of social impact and making changes that are social, economic, political, and the like in our society, from, you know, calling out um, uh, pesticides being used on apples um, and starting a whole national uh, blitz about that and boycott, etc., all the way then to uh, working with the new no-nukes um, issues surrounding that. So would you just walk us through some of the memorable pieces of what it is you've done that you are feeling particularly happy about that you've been able to accomplish? I know there are a lot of them, so I know it's well, a sure. question. Sure. Um, well, I'm basically a 60s kid, and I uh, was very lucky that I, uh, I was able to carry on in the tradition of 60s uh, progressive activism my entire career, and I still am. And yes. I've never uh, done anything else. And, um, and really, I, I blame it all on Abby Hoffman. Do you know who Abby Hoffman was? Okay. So a lot of I'm people, a 60s of you, kid too, yeah, yeah, by yeah. the way. Well, a lot of people, young people today don't know who he was, and, and they really should yes. ask Professor Google about Abby Hoffman, who was um, the most theatrical, uh, the most uh, innovative, the funniest uh, activist, very effective anti-prop activist uh, of the 60s, starting in the civil rights movement and then through the anti-war movement and the counterculture. Um, I miss Abby every day. Uh, Abby, for example, um, when he would do television interviews, he always wrote the word free on his forehead. That was the goal, to be free. And he once opened a store on the Lower East Side where everything was literally free. It didn't last too long, but it was a great idea <laughs> while it lasted. Um, was that on St. Mark's Place? <laughs> it was. And, uh, and uh, 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 Sasha Baron Cohn is going to play Abby uh, in October in a Netflix movie about the Chicago uh, 7 trial, the Chicago conspiracy trial, where Abby was one of at first eight and then seven defendants. And they were charged with crossing state lines to incite a riot. Uh, at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, where the only rioters were the police. Um, and it was, uh, I had it the Sounds a little of, familiar today, yeah, doesn't it? You know? And uh, I had the privilege of attending some of that trial. I was, um, I was 17 years old, 1969. And the first day I walk into a courtroom in my entire life, 
Yes. I see uh, the, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, Bobby Seale, and the federal marshals were ordered by the judge to uh, bind and gag him to a chair. They stuffed a gag in his mouth and tied his hands behind his back because he wouldn't stop protesting that he, that he wasn't allowed to have his own attorney. So uh, this huge fight breaks out in the courtroom and people are jumping on the federal marshals and their fists are flying. And I'm like, wow, courts are amazing. <laughs> this <laughs> so is Abby's a courthouse. Abby's about to get better known. He, uh, he, he had a great way with words. He, he called his first book Revolution for the Hell of It, which of course pissed off all the uh, traditional Marxists. And uh, his most famous book was called Steal This Book. Yes, sure. Which a lot of people did. But um, And Abby taught me a lot that you could Oh, I got him media. confused with Jerry Rubin a little bit. Well, that was his sidekick. I knew yes. Jerry, too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but, I had him as well. uh, what Abby taught me is that uh, you could use the media to make social change. Mm -hmm. um, and you could use the media also to... Uh, make what you were doing seem larger than it was. For example, Abby and some friends started a, a group, they called it the, the Youth International Party, otherwise known as the as Yippie. Yippies. Um, <laughs> and you know, the, the, the network television news and the major newspapers in the New York Times would, would report, you know, today the Youth International Party said, and it, it was like three guys. And uh, then my favorite is uh, they ran a pig for president. Oh, the name Yippie became very well known. That's right. And they were using media to help to broadcast three guys sitting in a living room. They were. Opining. And, and, and they ran a pig for president of the United States in 1968, Harbinger, uh, what actually happened, of course. Um, but very theatrical, very creative. And, you know, it's hard for young people to believe this today, but... Um, Abby used to get arrested repeatedly for wearing a shirt made out of an American flag. And that was illegal back then until eventually the U.S. Supreme Court said, okay, you could wear an American flag shirt, you know, which people think nothing of today. And one day he went on the most popular network TV talk show of the era, which was the Merv Griffin show. Yeah, sure. And the producer of that show was Roger Ailes, who later went on of course, to uh, brainwash 30% of America by founding Fox News. Sure. And so the response uh, of Roger to Abby being in there on her shirt is he blacked out the shirt on television. So you can only see Abby's face. Everything below him was blacked out. <laughs> but Merv Griffin was a little a racy for Roger Ailes, really, right? Well, you know... Uh, Roger, yeah, pretty evil guy. But Abby taught me a lot, and uh, yeah, so he was a I, mentor I, for you. And he, I was part you. of a news service that uh, served all the hippie anti-war underground newspapers at the time, called Liberation News Service, mm -hmm. and we put out credible material uh, about what was wrong with the war in Vietnam and articles about the Black Panthers and the counterculture w without the mainstream media bias. So that was really uh, where I had my education. Yes. And then I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, to become an outside agitator. Did you go I, to college in I never Chicago? finished high school. You I never, never finished, finished high school. school. Oh. And I never went to college for a day. Oh, my. Uh, you know, Tim Leary said, in the Playboy interview in 1967, uh, turn on, tune in, and drop oh, out. So I followed him faithfully. <laughs> so at any rate, I moved to Ann Arbor and uh, joined a commune of uh, hippie political agitators, basically, uh, and started publishing a, an underground newspaper. And we, uh, when they lowered the voting age to 18, we took over the Ann Arbor uh, City Council using the student and youth vote, uh, we started a third political party called the Human Rights Party. And of course, our first act to pay back the marijuana dealers who had financed the campaign was to legalize pot. We, in 1972, we passed a law that made the sale and possession of cannabis a $5 parking ticket. 
Um, so, and then we opened free daycare centers and free medical clinics. And so you were actually able to change the laws in, 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 in oh, yeah, we took, we took over the government, um, and we had a lot of fun. Let me tell you. Um, so then I, uh, I went to work at lot. high times magazine in New York when I was 24 and I was an editor mm -hmm. and, and high times was a particularly challenging place to work because it, it featured a centerfold of the most beautiful marijuana buds of the month. And so all the dealers would come to our office to get <laughs> us high, hoping we would pick their buds for the centerfold. It was a very hard place to work. So then Jan Winter hired me at Rolling Were Stone Magazine. Were you on Magazine. the top of the Empire State Building, too? <laughs> <laughs> so I went to work at Rolling Stone as yes. their director of public relations. That was my first straight job, Rolling Stone. Um, and that's not and, so straight either. <laughs> well, Hunter S. Thompson was constantly trying to get me to take all these, you know, pills. And I, he never knew what they were, and I would never take them. So, uh, but we broke a lot of very serious and important news stories in that period of Rolling Stone. And I started uh -huh. learning the media and making contacts with the national media. And, and then... Uh, and Rolling was, Stone, it should be said, is still very newsworthy and breaking a lot of good stories. It, it, it does sometimes, yes. So, um, so then I, I was very opposed to uh, nuclear power and, it, and there was a real chance it was going to expand very rapidly at that point. So I... Uh, what year was I, this? 1979. And I uh, produced uh, the so-called No Nukes concerts at Madison Square Garden with Bruce Springsteen and Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt and Carly Simon and James Taylor and the Doobie Brothers and a, a bunch of other people. And we did five nights of concerts, a record and a motion picture and an outdoor rally. And we messed up nuclear power's image pretty good. <laughs> uh, and Three Mile One Island One of my happened. closest friends, by the way, when I told him I was going to be speaking with you, said, no nukes, and sent me the link to the film and said, he's my hero. <laughs> so, Well, of course, there are climate activists today who won't forgive me for that because they're pro-nuclear. I'm not pro-nuclear, but I understand where they're coming from, of course. So then when I was done with that, I had learned the power of media, of celebrity, of rock and roll to change politics, of all these lessons. And I, I decided there should be a public relations firm for progressives. And back then, all the PR firms were totally corporate, and a lot of them worked for murderous, heinous foreign dictators and polluting companies. And, yes. And, and reporters, even fair-minded reporters, couldn't help but be influenced by that, the one-sidedness of the organized efforts to influence them. So I decided there should be an alternative and I had no idea if it could be financially successful, but I decided to try. And that was um, 38 years ago. And now uh, Fenton has uh, 70 employees in New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and L.A. and is doing very well. And by the way, doing very well without me. I'm proud to say. Without? Without me. I'm hardly involved now. Uh, their CEO, Ben Wiskett, is doing a great job. You remain and as chairman. Yes, but I'm mostly focused now on trying to communicate the urgency of climate change because it, it's a failure of the movement. We have not aroused people sufficiently. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. So, I mean, you accomplished taking, as I said at the beginning, your heartfelt values and your perception <coughs> of what the issues are that we are all facing as a humanity, as a species, really. And now we're able to use media to really be influential. Now, some of the things that you were influential on, I mean, one, you've already said some, but this is a very important piece. Uh, and you reminded me of it yesterday of the Alar, the pesticide on apples and the outrage that you created around that. But it also gave birth then from that outrage very much to the organic food movement. Um, yes, if you, if you look at a graph of the sales of organic foods in the United States, basically it's a flat line pretty much until 1989 when we did this campaign and then it has been shooting up ever since, I'm, I'm proud to say. Tell us a little bit about that campaign. 
Sure. Well, uh, Alar was a pesticide and growth regulator used in apples, mostly to uh, turn them red around the same time to make harvesting easy. And mm -hmm. the you know, scientific data showed that it was the most potent carcinogen for children in the food supply because kids, of course, as every parent knows, eat a lot of applesauce and apple juice. And so for their size, they're getting way overdosed sure. with the chemicals in apples. Tiny immune systems. And uh, tiny brains. Uh, yes. So, uh, you know, a bunch of state attorney generals had been trying to ban this chemical for years. The EPA had it under the, in what they called special review, stymied by industry year after year. It was going nowhere. There were court cases. So uh, working for the Natural Resources Defense Council, we uh, launched a campaign to focus attention on this. And it, it started with a 60-minute segment back in the days when everybody watched it. I still do. <laughs> yeah, but you're not everybody. Um, and uh, they featured the dangers of this. And the next day, everybody stopped buying apples. The bottom fell out of the apple market. The country literally wouldn't buy them. And, and even I didn't anticipate something that big. Yes. Um, but, you know, an apple a day and children, these are very visceral symbols. Sure. So uh, Uniroyal, the manufacturer of the chemical, within a week uh, was forced to unilaterally withdraw the chemical permanently from the market with no act of government, no court case, no regulatory action. The people basically banned the chemical. And, uh, and then about a year later, the EPA finally uh, officially banned it uh, based on the science. Now, so uh, then the uh, agrochemical industry and the right-wing crazies sued me and 60 Minutes and NRDC saying we had intentionally and maliciously defamed their apples. <laughs> and... Uh, this case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which threw it out. Um, <laughs> but more interestingly, this is around the time that the uh, the right-wing disinformation machine began to emerge. Mm -hmm. And if you Google me, one of the main things you will see is all this disinformation from these right-wing groups that Alar was scared, that there was no science, that we made it all up that it was all media manipulation and they leave out that there was tons of science it was peer-reviewed and that the the scientists and the government eventually banned it they don't tell you that so you know this is the advent really of uh, fake conservative news basically yeah. and their whole infrastructure uh, which has so hurt this country um, and, and i really continues to even more radically funny word to use, but well, they created Trump. They have right. 30, 40% of the country, uh, literally brainwashed living in an alternative reality. Yes. And that's their intention, you know, to have power and profit for themselves. It's, uh, it's very, and now of course, by continuing to cast doubt on the virus to uh, say we should reopen too early, to back governors who won't make people wear masks. I mean, these people are killers. The disinformation is killing people. And on climate change, it's the same thing. Because, uh, you know, these uh, so-called conservative media have convinced uh, half the country that climate change is not caused by humans and that it's some left-wing uh, plot. And so we're not doing anything about it. Everybody's still driving around in these huge polluting cars and heating the planet every time they turn the ignition. And that's why these storms are getting worse. And that's why the wildfires are getting worse. And so uh, getting the public to understand the urgency of this is perhaps the most important task there is right now. So I'm I very involved with in that. that. A better world is completely committed to an outcome that is parallel with what you're saying. Well, it's sure, it's called survival. Yes, it's Let's called survival. Survive. Yes, and, I know. And, you know. If we survive, we can, you know, continue to fight out on all the other issues. But exactly, that's if we don't cut emissions in half in ten years, we're not going to make it. Game over. You know, I'm, but well, certainly for the coastal cities of the world, it'll be game over. They won't be stable. That's right. That's right. 
But you and know, that means as chaos. Paul Hawken put it this way, if I can recall his comment, it's not game over, actually. It's game on. That perhaps global warming is not something that's happening to us, but for us. And it's giving us people like you and me and others that we know a chance to really step up to the plate and radically do something about the current situation. And well, that's a very uh, Paul Buddhist like positive view, of course. But, that's right. And, and let's hope it turns out to be true because there is time indeed to reverse this, but not much. And uh, no, not much at all. And you know, the thing uh, uh, about that I've been urging is you know, the big environmental groups do a lot of great things, yes. but they don't focus and they hardly spend any money on communicating with the broad public. They mostly talk to the converted. And so there really isn't a big force out there teaching people about this. And this is a big problem. So uh, the only how force- do you propose then, David, with your incredible knowledge and all that you've done with, with Mandela, what you did with uh, Obama, what you did with MoveOn.org, which are just a handful of your Well, I never events. worked for o- Obama, but though at MoveOn, we fundraised for him a lot. <laughs> yes, right. So um, indirectly. Well, what's needed... You know how to mount a large consensus-building campaign. Sure, but it takes a lot of money. And by and large, until just recently the big philanthropic donors to Mm -hmm. climate uh, have focused on funding policy development, uh, lawsuits against the government, you know, science. uh, And, and that's all great. It's what I call the supply of policy. Yes. But they have not sufficiently funded demand for policy and we don't lack a supply of policy. We know what to do. That's right. We lack demand. This is not a top issue for most people. And that's because they don't know how urgently threatening it is to them and their family. Although I think this will change very, very rapidly. But you are, you know, you are, I mean, and I also fancy myself as a messenger meaning knowing how to craft messages that will reach the public collective psyche in a way that will make a difference, that will get people thinking in a new way, the way you have done literally dozens of times um, professionally. So I'm wondering, and I'm always looking for that type of communication that will have the desired effect. Well, you know, it's not just a question of the message, although that's certainly very important. I think uh, progressives tend to um, ignore and pay insufficient attention to the how you have to ensure that the message reaches people. And not only reaches them, yes. but re- reaches them repetitively, repetitively, over and over and over again. You know, the cognitive science is very clear. Only the repetition of simple messages and images changes yep. the brain and changes public opinion. And, you know, the people on the right and in business who go to business school, they know this. They've had to learn to sell things, to advance their careers. And on our side, we don't like selling things. Oh, that's dirty. That's manipulative. That's beneath us. (laughs) You know, great ideas will triumph on their own. Well, sorry, no, they won't. Not really. And so... The, the infrastructure and the resources to ensure that the successful winning messages reach the target audiences enough, that's lacking. That's what we're missing. And the, the message that I'm quite certain is going to be the most effective is a very simple metaphor that was developed by a great uh, a climate scientist in Texas named Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, H-A-Y-H-O-E, look her up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Dr. Oh, Hayhoe yeah, says yeah. that with these gases that we are putting out, we are creating an extra blanket around the earth, a blanket of pollution, a pollution blanket. Yes. And it's trapping heat on earth that used to go back out to space. And it's like when you were a kid, 
Yeah. And your mother would come in in the middle of the night and put an extra blanket on you, and you'd wake up sweating. Well, that's what we're doing to the earth. That's a and good we know, image. Yeah. We know how to take the. I'm sorry. That's okay. We know how to take the extra blanket off, and that's by switching to clean energy and changing how we farm. We know what to do. That's right. But there are, you know, a very few very greedy companies that are trying to stop us like the Koch brothers and Exxon and yes. Chevron. And so that's the battle for survival is stopping them. And I'm sure that we can, but we better hurry up. You know, uh, well put. And I, I wholly agree, which is no big surprise to you. And we also know that in messaging, and reaching people, which I take that as part and parcel of the same thing, not just some kind of abstract message, uh, reaching people. And we know that things that are fun, that are funny, that are sexy, um, that have a little offbeatness to them, are those things that kind of get through and pop the bubble. And what you did with Alar is very interesting because as you made the good point, it did not involve government. It did not involve policy, legislation, none of it. In fact, the only thing it involved ultimately was the Supreme Court and you won. So, you know, so that was, that's an interesting little piece of it all. So with that as sort of an analogy, it's kind of interesting. I wonder what kind of message we can craft and way we can infuse that so it becomes interesting to people. Like they want to be part of it. Like for instance, a friend of mine started something called the Compassion Games. And he went around to mayors across the country and he interested them in running these uh, games on behalf of their respective city where people had to kind of do good and then they would win a little merit, you know, a little credit. And, you know, it was like this fun thing of, you know, helping people with the garbage and helping pick up litter and any number of different things around a city that needs to be done. Sure. So I'm thinking along those lines, David, maybe there is some creative way to engage people to do things like that. Well, there is. And in fact, uh, I can't talk much about it right now, but um, there's a campaign in the works, a global campaign to sign up a billion people to take specific actions that will, in the aggregate, greatly lower planetary emissions. Really achievable, simple things that people can do. Mm-hmm. So there, there are efforts like that underway. But again, uh, the question is, will the campaigns have the resources to really reach people? You know, in, in the yeah. old days, sure. when I was starting out and Abby Hoffman was operating, et cetera, mm-hmm. reaching the public was a lot easier. You know, basically, everybody watched one of three network television news programs. That's all there was. And so the country had a shared experience that is not as common today. And if we were to get information and something compelling on one or two of those television network news stories, the whole country would know about it. So now the media is so fragmented and social media even more so, Mm -hmm. that creating that shared experience generally can only be done with money. You have to buy it. Yes. You know, progressives had a chance 20 years ago to to start a real alternative to Fox News, and they didn't. And and sorry, MSNBC is not it. You know, a lot of people feel harangued by some of the MSNBC shows, certainly not all of them. So... The the but if people were, I mean, a lot of the big NGOs have very big budgets, and maybe they spend one percent of it reaching the public. So I'm you know urging them time to change. You have mm-hmm. to reach the public. Mm-hmm. That's the source of your political power. It's not your backroom deals and charisma. Sorry, that's not it. I so like hopefully, I think we're going to get a, another chance. I mean, I think. Uh, uh, you know, Trump is going to have a very hard time being president again. Uh, you know, it's hard to run on dead bodies and no jobs. That's very difficult. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've coined a, a really obnoxious slogan for this situation where in the red and southern states, 
the governors won't tell people to wear masks. They wouldn't lock down. They reopened too early. They poo-pooed the science. Right. My slogan is, it's really bad. It's red state, dead state. <laughs> it is and, succinct. <laughs> and I feel badly for the people that are dying, believe me. But of this you know, anti-science, Yahooism, I think is going to die out now. I think we're going to turn to trusting experts and to... Uh, more desire for mutual and collective action. I think we've probably heard about Jared Kushner's plan to uh, first yeah. provide national testing, and then he abandoned that because they found that most of the people that were dying were actually in what they call, which I don't like the phrase, blue states. Yeah, and yeah, abandoned the project. Yeah, that's what you call a crime against humanity. Exactly. The people so, that did that should go to prison. this administration. They're, they're accomplices to murder. They should go to prison. Absolutely. Sorry. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, this is really crazy. So what but, you know, you the other thing I've been involved in a lot yeah, in please. my career is, is racial justice. And, you know, on the good news side, we've had a 25-point overnight shift in the public opinion polls oh. of white Americans recognizing that the police are brutal and horrible to black people and that it's time to set this straight. Oh, and that because right. of the George Floyd video, and it's a remarkable development. And I'm very hopeful now that there is going to be a lot of movement on the social and especially racial justice front. And I was very privileged to be involved in certain junctures of this. Mm -hmm. Going back and to the civil the rights days. Well, even after that, you know, in the early 90s, um, I helped set up an organization called the Death Penalty Information Center. And the, the goal was to use the media to teach the public about what was racist and discriminatory and horrible about the application of the death penalty in the United States. Yes. And uh, Rick MacArthur, the even now the publisher of Harper's Magazine. Oh, this was yes. his idea, and he funded it. And at the time, 90% of the American public was in favor of the death penalty. And through the work of this effort, it's now much less. And one of the most interesting experiences I had was getting to know Brian Stevenson, the American uh, black American lawyer who is in Alabama mm -hmm. and started this group, the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh -huh. You may have heard of Brian. He started a museum to uh, lynching. Yes, and I do. I've putting seen up monuments at all the sites of lynching. And he wants to. And he wants to see a, a a national truth and reconciliation commission in the United yes. States on race, based on what was done in South Africa, which was very successful to teach white South Africans what blacks had suffered, which really laid the groundwork for a, a non-recriminatory unified approach to rectifying mm -hmm. the situation, which is what we need here. But working with Brian, Embedded we got a number of people, in, we got people fact. off death row who are innocent. So and, many. You know, and that is really incredibly gratifying work. And if you see the recent Hollywood film with Jamie Foxx called uh, Just Mercy, which is based on Brian's book, mm -hmm. you can see the story of uh, one of these innocent people that was held on Alabama's death row for a very long time, Walter McMillan. And I highly recommend the film Just oh, Mercy with Jamie Foxx. Excellent. Thank you. Yes, there really is. I'm so glad to hear that you are so deeply involved in that space, which everyone, because of the George Floyd uh, video, here again, video making an impact, uh, everyone's awareness across the country and the world has really risen and has ticked up in a very powerful way. I didn't know it registered as 25%, but I'm really glad. No, 25% shift in the polls shift. overnight. The vast majority of yeah. white people finally are waking up to this. The penny dropped, so to speak. And, and I think that there will be real change now. You know, I, I'm really glad to hear that. But as you were speaking, I was just thinking about something else that even though you say, David, that it requires a 
an extraordinary amount of money to make the kinds of changes that we have in mind, i.e. global warming, etc. But there's another interesting phenomenon that has arisen as a result of social media, which is the idea, ironically, of going viral. And this is an utterly free phenomenon. It's well, it's when... not utterly free, with all respect. You know, that's, very few things go that viral on their own. Uh, you People that pay to boost content online have more success. Yes. And also, it well, all sure. depends on the, the Facebook algorithm gods. And there's a very big problem that's with true. that system, of course, which is, you know, the, uh, Facebook's motivation financially is to keep people coming to Facebook. And what does that the best is conflict, controversy, and uh, people screaming and yelling at each other. So they boost. It's like Fox News to me. <laughs> well, it, it, there are similarities, but they're boosting, Jerry <laughs> they're boosting content that uh, is false, for example, about climate change. And YouTube, the same. You know, the YouTube recommendation engine, which is the algorithm that shows you what they, YouTube thinks you should see, yes. features all this false stuff about climate science on purpose because it gets a lot of eyeballs, but it's doing enormous damage to the civilization. So, frankly, I'm for regulating these companies. I don't think that... Well, you know that just last week, the four FANG companies yes. were being scrutinized by, by Congress. I mean, I think everybody should be free to post whatever they want. The problem is the boosting of all this hateful and yeah. false content by these companies. Yes. And so something's got to be done about that. You know, people don't remember, but we used to have media regulation in this country that was consistent with the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And we had two doctrines that applied to broadcast over-the-air television and radio. One was called the Fairness Doctrine, and one was called the Equal Time Doctrine. And in order to have a license to use the public airways for radio or television, you had to adhere to these rules. And they were very simple rules. The Equal Time Doctrine said that if you feature a political candidate for public office, you have to give equal time to their opponent. And had we had that law in the 2016 election, yes. Trump would not have been able to dominate the news like that, which is how he won. The other doctrine, the Fairness Doctrine, said that you had to give fair time to all sides of an issue. You couldn't just be right-wing talk radio, for example. That was illegal. You'd lose your license. Isn't that interesting? And yeah. it, it was self-regulation. The threat of this kept the, most of the stations pretty straight and honest. And it withstood Supreme Court rulings. And I think we need to find ways to extend the Fairness and Equal Time doctrines to cable television and social media. So what you know, happened to those two doctrines? I mean, well, were they... Ronald Reagan got rid of them uh, on purpose to enable the domination of broadcasting by right-wing groups. And, uh, but we need to bring those laws back. Otherwise, we're just going to have chaos. You know, you can't really have a de functioning democracy if 30, 40% of the citizenry are constantly fed false stuff on purpose. You just can't. You know, uh, the great uh, Justice Louis Brandeis, he, he said, uh, you could either have a democracy or great concentrations of wealth, but you can't have both. Mm -hmm. Well, I've updated his slogan. I mean, he's still right about that. Mm -hmm. That, you know, you can have a democracy or you can have a lot of intentional falsehood in the public square uh, being boosted by these media companies. Uh, or, but you can't have both. You really can't. So we have to grapple with this in, in ways that are fair and conform to the First Amendment. You know, we have rules. You can't yell crap fire in a crowded theater. Public companies can't lie in their securities filings. The FTC regulates false advertising. It's not like we don't have rules about speech. They're just not that enforced. <laughs> That's right. Not in this era. 
So, right. you know, Not in this a, and I'm a pro First Amendment person. Yes. But there's no absolutes. There's no such thing as absolute freedom. That would be the freedom not to wear a mask and get everybody sick. So what do you think about the current situation where we have another face-off, this time again with Donald Trump, who's already stating that everything is rigged, that mail-in votes, uh, even though it's been going on for many, many, many decades, uh, are a way for fraud. And I mean, he is just constantly spewing forth talk he's about spreading intentional he's spreading intentional confusion. confusion so how from your point of view with the experience that you've had david in the political arena see as the best way to neutralize that type of deception and well, move I think us he's, to a more he's, positive place he's neutralizing himself he's his own worst enemy now that you know uh the senior citizens and suburban people uh, are losing faith in him. Uh, I don't think that he's going to be able to save himself now. You know, um, the, the, the willful ignoring of the pandemic uh, so that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to benefit him politically, it's not going to work. But once uh, the Democrats are back in power, of course, we're going to have to keep their feet to the fire, but I think there are structural things that really have to be changed. And one of them mm-hmm. is to bring back the right kind of thoughtful media regulation so that this nonsense can't happen again. I think that's an excellent point. You know, media has been running rampant. And one of the problems that we really don't talk about, especially of those of us who are considered more liberal or progressive, is the actual damage that the so-called media liberal media does because it was really they who were largely reporting on trump non-stop you could almost see an elected trump not just fox and that shouldn't be allowed that's my point they're going for ratings talk about and the aggregation of wealth you know jeff zucker the head of cnn Yes. Was the guy behind Trump's TV show, The Apprentice. So it was all for entertainment. Yes. And and the atmosphere is going to suffer from it and other species and us for decades. Um, and of course, you know, the wealth transfer that we've had, which is, you know, baronial and feudal. Uh, but I think this is all going to reverse now. I really do. I'm very optimistic. I'm really glad to hear that because I... I received one uh, article just today that was talking about how Trump doesn't even need to have a majority, as we know from last time in 2016, but he's just focused, laser focused on electoral votes. And then I received another email. So I was feeling very uncomfortable this morning. No, I look at my stomach was I'm optimistic. It's not over yet. And no. you know, people have to be vigilant and they have to vote. Truly. truly. Young people, especially, man, they need to vote. This is ridiculous. You're absolutely right. And then you know, I received And, and another... I worried that, I was worried for a while that the, while I, you know, of course supported all the protests, the small violent fringe and those protests, which were almost certainly egged on by government and police provocateurs who wanted violence to help yes. Trump that we shouldn't fall into that trap. You know, our emotions are understandable. Everybody is angry. But when you get involved in that kind of violence, you're just going to turn the public against you. You're certainly not going to defeat the government with violence. That's a fantasy. Absolutely. But just to share with you as a counterbalance to what I said about that first article, there was another article by uh, about a Professor Lichtman who has I saw that you saw that who yeah. has successfully predicted every yeah, yeah. single let's hope he's right yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's what it comes to exactly. let's hope he's right do you have any comments or thoughts to our listeners and viewers that you would like us i mean i i love that you were talking all about your relationship with abby hoffman and all that was happening back then i mean 
you know, you are one of those voices from back then. Well, I'm writing a memoir, so you'll be able to read all about it. Oh, all right, great. Then we'll, we'll have you the, on again because the we working title is working title only is activist. My life as a media agitator from the '60s to Trump. So you'll be able to read all about it. I like that. I like that. One of the things that we can certainly extract from what you're sharing was at the beginning here was the parallels, the resounding echoes from then until now. The same types of issues having to do with social injustice, racial injustice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that things haven't changed some they have changed some, but it all depends on what metric well, they've changed you're using a lot, to measure. Look, you know, the way I look at this is, so what did this, we accomplish from the 60s? Yes. Well, quite a lot. Um, uh, certainly, there's still... Cannabis is legal. <laughs> well, that's a big accomplishment. Yes, it is. That, Largely, you know. I should say. Largely. Yeah, 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 of course. We we accomplished an increase in all kinds of personal freedoms. Uh, and there's far less discrimination than there used to be against women and gays and, and, and uh, people of color. There's still discrimination, of course, but it's far less. True. Remember, you know, the in the 60s... The mindset has changed. In the 60s, gay people couldn't admit they were gay or they'd be fired from their jobs. And, uh, you know, you couldn't have imagined a black president. Um, and, uh, you, you know, uh, 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 women on the Supreme Court, those things were unimaginable. And I think also that um, we, uh, uh, you know, people don't remember, but uh, Lyndon Johnson sent 500,000 American soldiers to Vietnam. And while the the involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan was horrible. It wasn't numbers anything like that. 50,000 American soldiers were killed in Vietnam. And so the public turned against that, and, and that's never going to happen again like that. So I think a, a lot was accomplished. However, the big failure of the 60s is that we didn't affect power. You know, the, the corporate power is worse now than ever. Right-wing power is worse than ever. And so that's what we need to get serious about now. And, and that basically means mm-hmm. organizing and electing progressives. You know, we need AOCs in every congressional seat, basically, mm-hmm. is my view. Yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> and I think it'll happen. I really do. It's moving in that direction. You know, but I, I, again, I just want to kind of dip back in time to something that you did. And we've seen this kind of methodology used also since and before which is this simple thing called the boycott and because this is a country that runs its fuel as money if you take money out of those hands things change and the story about the apple the apple story um greater than the one of the cherry tree with george washington in many ways uh really exemplifies the power of the people it's the power <coughs> yeah, or of the dollar and the power boycott of against ending the- the reason boycott against hate speech on Facebook, where all these advertisers pulled out. That's, That's right. exactly the That's right. An excellent example of something very recent. You know, I, change I, things I, like that. We're going to have to end soon, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah. But I, I'll tell you one last boycott story. I think, something that we did. So uh, we were hired to uh, raise public concern about overfishing. This was in the early '90s, before the internet. Yes. And we discovered that among the most threatened fish species were swordfish, that swordfish were dying out. We were only catching baby swordfish. They were too young to reproduce. The fish was on the verge of literal extinction. So we went out and organized the nation's top chefs, and they promised not to serve swordfish until the government protected the spawning and nursing grounds of the species from overfishing. And there was no internet, right? But this really took on, it caught on, and all of a sudden, hotel chains were refusing to serve swordfish, restaurant chains, airlines refused to serve swordfish, fast food, you know, people just wouldn't serve it. 
And so the bottom dropped out of the swordfish market and the price collapsed. Yeah. So then the fishing industry, which had opposed us, all of a sudden was our big ally in lobbying the government to protect the fish because they wanted to restore the market. And we called that campaign, Give Swordfish a Break. Uh, in fact, I'll never forget, we bought one ad. We only had the money for one ad in the New York Times, and it was a line drawing of a swordfish. And the sword was coming out of his mouth, and there was a 3M post-it note on the end, and it said, try the pasta. <laughs> but it worked. So, yeah, you can do things. But language, imagery, mythology, these things are very important. And I Story think the left, the left doesn't, left doesn't pay enough attention to those things. It's all policy, policy. I agree. It's too left brain. We need some more creative juice for yeah. the movement of change. Well, it's happening. So I think you'll see more of it. I think so, too. David Fenton, thank you so much for coming on today and talking with our audience about these very important subjects. Really appreciate it. And love to have you on again. I think this is the beginning of a conversation. Okay, sure. Nice to see you. Nice to chat with you. Nice to see you, too. Thanks so long. Guys. Bye. Au revoir. Wow, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. What an interesting man with an incredible life. And uh, it's still forging ahead, making a difference in the world the way we all really want to, uh, to create, what can I say, a better world? How is that for a phrase? Uh, in fact, he is exemplary in so many ways. And it was a pleasure for me to hear many of the stories going back to the 60s and uh, the way that energy, which was so potent then, is in many ways being recatalyzed today among the movements taking place here now in 2020. So uh, it's no mistake that David would come on now to speak about these things. I think it's very, very salient and uh, very pertaining to our current time. I want to just thank you all for listening today and joining me here at A Better World. I love to hear your thoughts and feelings, comments. So contact me at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.